Good morning, everybody. Um, <laughs> someone came up to me today. For those of you who see me usually on a weekly basis, I usually have a dress code on. And they were like, ooh, you're going to bring it today, taking the coat off. And I said, no, no, not. no fire and brimstone today. But, but the microphone didn't work last time with the code. So here's where we are. But while I'm not bringing fire and brimstone, I am definitely going to address an important tenet of our faith. Um, it's certainly a foundational fact as we continue our study of uh, Paul's letters to Timothy. Uh, we're in the first letter with today. We will be in chapter 2, um, uh, 5, chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 7. And we're going to address a, an extremely important fact today. And, and as I put this together, um, I, I had an illustration that came to mind that I want to share with you initially. It's about a young man and a sister. Um, you can picture this uh, young man sitting on a hospital bed, uh, eight or nine years old, his younger sister sitting next to him, his parents on the other bed across from them, and a doctor is witnessing. The, the person who's telling the story is the doctor. The doctor is witnessing um, what will be a changing moment in his life. He, uh, he's explaining to the family that this young lady who is in dire need of a kidney transplant will have that kidney transplant today. And that the miracle of it is that her older brother is the candidate that, that will allow him, he is a candidate that qualifies to allow him to give one of his kidneys to his sister. Parents are obviously proud and concerned all at the same time. And as the doctor is explaining what's gonna happen during the rest of this day, the surgery, the recovery, who to talk to, etc. cetera. Uh, he notices that the boy is extremely nervous. His hands are shaking, uh, his voice is cracking. He is, he's, he's worried, even more so than what you would think. Um, the parents excuse themselves to go update the family that is waiting. The, the nurses come in and, uh, and announce that they need to prep the young lady. So. Uh, the doctor takes this young man and, and, and brings him outside and sits with him and says, son, you, you don't have to be this nervous. You don't have to be this worried. <clears throat> son goes, uh, or the brother goes, I, I'll be okay. I accept this. Strange response. Doctor goes, it's, it's going to be okay. I've done the surgery hundreds of times, thinking that the young man was worried about his sister. And he says, it's okay. You made it clear that now she has a kidney, she will survive. And it hit the doctor. This young man thinks that without a kidney, not understanding the basic biology of two kidneys, that his life will be ending. I still get choked up when I hear that story. The doctor announced that he he understood that this son, this child, a brother, reconciled life and death for his sister. He was willing to give up his kidney and his life. We're going to talk about that today because that is a tenet of our faith, what Christ did. The reconciliation between us and God. The reconciliation between life and death. So I've named this, uh, I've titled this service, uh, The Mediatorial Ministry of Christ, 
um, about him as our mediator. And as we continue through this study of uh, Paul's letters to Timothy, we understand that Paul's goal is to to help this young man become a better, more godly man, and, and in doing so be a godly, better church leader, and by that, create a more godly church. And he introduces this three-verse section. I would argue one of the most powerful sections of, our, of this letter, certainly, in the Bible. So I share with you again, I appreciate you reading it earlier, but I share with you again, 1 Timothy 2, 5-7, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a herald and apostle, I'm telling you the truth, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The great thing about preaching on sections like this is that the theology is perfectly clear. There is one God. There is one mediator. And the ransom was paid. One God, one mediator. And the ransom was paid. We could stop there and call it a day. If we, if we could wrap our hands around that and, and, and embrace that and understand what it truly means, that which would and should change our lives. It would and should change the world around us. But this is tough. And today, as I go through this, we're going we're gonna to theologically look at each verse. But what I want to do will be dictated by something that happened to me this week. I, I want to kind of put some rubber on the road because while we this it is truth and it's powerful but the question you need to ask is does it truly apply to your life is this something that really digs deep I, like Nicole said when she sings a song it moves her to tears does this move you to tears and if it doesn't if it doesn't move you deeply in truth then, then we need to go deeper and we need to examine this better so let, let's dig in um, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there's one God, one mediator, uh, between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. See, what this talks about is, is the mediatorialship, the exclusive role that Christ plays as a mediator between us and God. There is, and this is controversial today, there is no other way to God. He is the truth, the way, the, he is the truth and the light and the way, and Nobody comes to the Father but Christ. That's, he shares that with us, and that is not popular in today's world. It's uncomfortable out there when we say there's only one way. We, we like things to be even and fair and open. But the truth is, this verse tells us clearly that he is the mediator between us and God. It is foundational to our faith. How much so? That if this is wrong, if this is untrue, Everything before it and everything after it falls apart. C.S. Lewis once said that Christ, Jesus, Christ is either the Savior of the world or he is the greatest liar that the world has ever known. He cannot be both. That's a very wise statement. See, our faith is based on the fact that the Old Testament and everything about it led to the cross, led to Christ and his sacrifice and everything after that it's the fulfillment of the law. It's the fulfillment of what God's plan is. And it all centers around 
him, Jesus, being the mediator between us and God. This completes, if you will, Jesus' ministry for us. It goes beyond the birth, the miracle birth. It goes beyond the ministry, the three or three and a half years, depending on how you look at it. It goes beyond the cross. It goes beyond the death and the resurrection. It even goes beyond the ascension. Because now, by these words, we know that at, at, seated at the right hand of the Father is Jesus Christ as our mediator. That gap that existed, that, that chasm between us and God. Why? Our sin. Our sin is now gone. It is filled. It is, we can communicate, we can reach out, we can experience God like we couldn't before simply because we, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in detail, but we could not be in the so this, this idea of him being the mediator completes his ministry. And what it shows us is that we, next slide, guys, please. Thanks. Uh, is that we have a saving God and a saving son. Often God, the way we see God is, is some reflection of, of how we look at things. Don't we, whenever they show a picture of God on television, he's an old man, on a cloud, sitting on a throne somewhere, almost cartoonish. And we hear all these things that just aren't true. And one of the things is that he's this vicious, terrible, stepped-up version of Zeus with thunderbolts and anger. He's not. He's the saving God. And I wanted to share this with you because not only is he a saving God, he gives us a saving son. I've listed some verses here. There are numerous ones that talk about God and his character and, of course, Christ as the saving son. But let me share these with you. They're, they're not that many. They're short. But we go to Psalms 145, and it says here that the Lord is a gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all, and he has compassion on all that he has made. Sounds like saving God to me. I don't hear anger and hatred. I hear love and compassion. When he goes on in Isaiah, he says, Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. To you without silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine, milk without silver, without cost. Come to me. He wants us to come. He wants us to cherish and, and, and embrace the wonderful things that, that he wants us to offer. He goes on in Ezekiel with uh, 18.23 and 18.32. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the sovereign Lord, rather, rather, rather am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live. He goes on, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. He finishes with 2 Peter. The Lord is not, is not slow to keep his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to his, his experience. Sounds like a, a God who wants to save. Sounds like a God who, who wants that relationship, who never designed the gap between us and him that sin created. 
But then we have the son, and in case you question whether or not he is qualified to be the mediator, I share with you these verses. We go to Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no, one, no other name under heaven given to the people by which we must be saved. Hebrews 8.6 shares with us, but Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree, he is a mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. Continues with John, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. And then we finish with John 3.16. And I always find it ironic that, 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 that we don't preach on this very often. We don't talk about it anymore. It's kind of like that cliche verse, which is terrible. I know the football players wear it on their faces or we see signs everywhere. Maybe that's taken away the meaning and the depth of the verse. Read this with me. How can, for God so loved the world that in this way that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life? How, how, how has that not become important all the time? How many times can we read that and not have it change who we are? See, my point here is with this verse, I want to make sure you understand that we do have a saving God and we do have a saving son. Which leads us to the formula, the um, equation that is created by this fact. is that we have humankind, you, me, everyone in the past, everyone in the future. And then we had the Father, God the Father. And that gap has been filled, as you can see by the illustration, by Jesus Christ. Is it complicated? Not any more so than that. Do we sometimes complicate it ourselves? And, but ifs? Yes, we do. But it's not. The verse tells us clearly that he is our mediator. He has completed his ministry so that he can serve our needs and wants and prayers, our salvation to a God above. So why Jesus? Next slide, guys, please. See, God is a saving God. God is a loving God. God is a righteous and a holy God. Those standards don't change, and they can't. I, I have a quote I want to share with you from um, pastor. His name is Ian Watkins. He said, there is a necessity for a mediator, but there are difficulties that exist in this fact. A, a mighty gulf separates God and man. He cannot cross to us, and we cannot cross to him. His holiness is but one obstacle. He is pure, he is of pure eyes than to behold evil. Guilty and polluted as we are, we cannot approach the holy being without being consumed. Justice and judgment are habitations of his throne. Maintaining the honor and dignity of his government, God's government, with is another obstacle. The great legislator, God of heaven, has enacted a law that sin must be punished. That death must be the penalty for disobedience. 
that peace on earth and glory to God may be harmonized. There must be a mediator. That mediator is equally necessary on the part of man. We need one, capital O, one, into the depths of ruins, place underneath him the arms of a loving, passionate God and raise him up to him. We need a mediator. And the reason we do is because sacrifice, sacrifices that God taught the Old Testament believers was no longer enough. If you would imagine, the, the, the priests would be there, the, the whole design through Aaron, through God, through the temples, to, to appease God, to put our sin on an altar. The piles of carcasses, the flesh that was sacrificed on a daily basis to justify our, to redeem us before God must have been massive. And, and, and I've, I've been asked, why would God do that? Why, why so many animals? I mean, Peter would go crazy today, and, and, and most of us would be disgusted by it. And that's the key. Sin is disgusting. It is ugly and terrible. And the cost for it is death. And God wanted us to understand that. And here's the key. Whose death should it be? Our sin, our death. But instead, he gave us an option. An option to sacrifice a lamb, an oxen, a dove, some animal in our place. And that was the Old Testament view. And what it proved is that no matter what we do, the line to the sacrificial table never ends. There's no way around or through our sin. We cannot meet the standard of God. And that leads us to the New Testament view where God decided, I will send my son. I will come in the flesh. Why flesh? And sacrifice spirit. So he sent his son, sent the second part of the Trinity to feel and understand and to experience the true and one sacrifice that would be made, which would ultimately lead to the fact that he can be our mediator. It's kind of like if God said to the world, well, if you want the job done, you want it done right, go ahead and do it yourself. I, I, would, I would rephrase that. I would rephrase it that if you are the only one that can do the job correctly, if you're the only one that can complete the project, then you're the only answer to who can do it. We move on to verse 6. Give himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Uh, this speaks to God's, to Christ's complete atonement. He, he, he fills the gap completely. It's not kind of halfway. It's not different for you or me. It's, it's completed. His, the, we are redeemed because of who he is and his relationship with God. He is the pathway to God. You may argue that. I don't think anybody in this room would, but the world will argue that until the end of time. But the, the fact is that the price and the ransom has been paid in full. Simple, one God, one Savior, one Redeemer, and one ransom that's been paid. 
And Paul said it best in Galatians 4, 4, 5, when he said, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as as sons. He came at the perfect time. God took care of it himself. He sent the only person that could complete this equation, his son, and he made him flesh, born of a woman. He put him under the law to complete the law because it couldn't be done on our own. And we are adopted. And if, you've, if I've lost you, I need you to come back to me. We've talked a lot about adoption at this church in our studies and from the pulpit. What I want you to understand about adoption is this. He didn't have to adopt you. We are called to be his family because he chose that. And the complexities of adoption this time, uh, we don't have enough time to go into today, but it was not taken lightly to be adopted. The privileges that came with it also came with great responsibility. To be adopted, be chosen, what we need to remember is that God did not need to come for us. He chose to come with us. And in doing so, it introduces in the last verse a responsibility that we must accept. For this, Paul says, I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying, which is an emphasis of how important this is. And a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. We understand that there is one God. We understand there is one mediator. We understand there is one ransom paid in full. But there is a fourth factor here that Paul introduces is that there is a responsibility for us, for you, for me, to talk about that act. We are called, we are to herald the announcement of this mediator. And it's not to be taken lightly. When we talk about this mediator, we're not talking about someone who stands in between two warring parties. That's a general understanding of the word mediator, and it's not incorrect, but this word used in the original language means that both parties chose this mediator. They understood that whatever this mediator did or offered as an option or a solution would be adhered to. God chose Christ to come to us. Do you choose Christ to be the Savior, the mediator between you and God? It must go both ways. And that leads us to where I really want to finish today. I don't typically finish with a a video. I I usually don't have um, short videos in my sermons, but but I'm going to share that with you today. And the reason why is this. I received a phone call um, last week. I'm going to be very careful here to keep confidentiality. This individual called me. He is a, a, a Christian. Uh, they, they love God. And he called me and he said, my sin is eating me alive. It's heartbreaking. This, this individual is um, in love with God. And he shared the words we never want to hear. My life has no more value. And I'm willing to sacrifice it. Forgive me. 
I'm willing to sacrifice it because I have let him down. Oh, it's heartbreaking. He understands what I preach to you today. He understands that humankind must have a, a reconciler, a, a, a middleman to God. But what we often do is what this man experienced. We spin around and we hang on to our sins and we hang on to it like this where we should be like this. And we, we go, I can't do it anymore. I've already done it 50 times this week. I sinned again. Oh, look at that on my computer. Oh, look what I did to her. Look what I did to him. My marriage. All of us deal with these things. And we get caught up in the spinning between us and Christ. This young individual, I asked him the two questions I always ask when someone comes to me for counseling. One, have you given it to God? And two, have you repented? I ask the two questions because the answer, 99% of the time, is no. Even if we know better. Not repented. I'm not giving it to God. We prefer to steep in our sin, to stand in the ugliness, as opposed to go through that door again. And explain one more time to our Savior that I failed. One more time to our God that I'm not worthy. The truth of it is, is we're not. But he is. So why do I, why do I lead the sermon this way? It's because if you don't recognize him for what his role is, if he is not that mediator between you and God, you handcuff God. God can't work through him to you unless you understand that the only way to him is through Christ. I can't blame us, I can't blame this young person for feeling that he does. Next slide, guys, please. See, our world, it's no different than, it does, these things have always existed, but our world today inundates us with all these things, relative truth, there really is no sin. We, we're all enlightened. Social media calls out to us. Spiritualism, soft doctrine. All these things are voices in our ears as opposed to the one true God who said, come to me. Come to me. I am the way. I, I quench that thirst forever. See, there's nothing spiritual about Jesus. He's true. He is real. There is no soft doctrine. This is not easy doctrine, and it shouldn't be. There is no relative truth. Truth is truth. I'm not going to get into that deeply, but the truth is that Jesus is the Son of God. He earned the position to be the mediator. He chose that position. Will you choose him? And the good news is, is, as of yesterday, I received a text from this young person. All I asked this person to do was, when you repented, when you gave it to God, just text me and say, I've done it. I got that text. You see, the middle one, <clears throat> the middle one here is that God is dead. 
And that is the understanding of much of this world. God is not dead. He's very much alive. He wants you to come to him. I want to finish with a question in one video. It takes about four minutes. Um, I couldn't find a better way to summarize it than this. So if you will, can you guys play the video for me, please? Time and time and again, a courtroom scene. Someone is being charged with a crime. And the lawyers parade the witnesses in and out. Their very testimonies have the power to swing the pendulum of fate. The jury, they sit and they listen and they deliver a verdict. And then the judge slams down the gavel and declares a sentence. But what about you? Is the jury still out on you? Do you live this day in and day out existence as though someone has handed you a guilty verdict? It feels like we live the good parts and the bad parts of our lives as though they're on a set of scales. And inevitably, the bad stuff, it always seems the heaviest. In John chapter 8, we find a woman that was literally dragged out of bed with the man that she was having an affair with. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, she was caught in the act. We know nothing about her past. We have no idea if this is a long-standing affair and she just really didn't feel bad about it anymore. Or maybe she had a cruel husband and she felt depressed and all of a sudden here comes this man that just finds her fascinating. Regardless, the two of them, in a fit of passion, make this huge mistake and she had no idea that she was going to be torn from that bed thrown into public probably naked to tumble upon the fate of jesus and her accusers want jesus to judge her can you imagine the tape that was playing in her mind that day oh what have i done i can't believe i keep making the same mistakes Look at these people judging me, mocking me. I've gone too far. I have gone way too far for God to ever love a screw-up like me. Those are real thoughts. 
And if I'm honest, there's been a good portion of my life where I felt like my soul has been in the courtroom. Not that I was thrown in front of a large crowd where all my sins lay naked for the whole world to see. But I know what I've done. I have dark secrets just like you. I have declared myself guilty. How does guilt manifest itself in everyday life? Have you ever been given a compliment but you just brush it off? Has anyone ever tried to break through that tough exterior to show you love but your wall is so high there's just no way anyone can get through and you find yourself yet again alone? Shame and guilt are powerful prisons. But it doesn't have to be that way. There is no jury declaring you guilty. Our innocence is found in Christ. The only sentence you have is found in Romans chapter 8 that says, For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those would be the words that would change this woman's life forever. But before she heard those words, she heard Jesus say as he looked at the crowd, If any of you have never made a mistake, if you are perfect, go ahead and start throwing rocks. And Jesus looked at this woman and said, woman, where is your jury? Who's condemning you? And the woman looked around and everybody was gone. And she looked at Jesus. She said, no one, no one is condemning me. And then Jesus looked at the woman and said, well, I don't condemn you either. Go, go and sin no more. Can you imagine the look on this woman's face when she realized her verdict? Not guilty. And we have been given the same verdict. Aren't you tired of beating yourself up over your past? When are you going to stop being judge and jury and even executioner of your own life? Because if you look in the jury box, no one is there. And if you go to the judge's bench, no one is swinging a gavel declaring your condemnation. And there's not going to be any surprise witnesses coming in at the last minute to bring up embarrassments from your past. You are free. for you as it was for me when I first saw it. Um, we do those things. We, we hang on to our sins, don't we? I don't know if you noticed in the video, but who unlocked the chains? Who had the key? We do. Our Savior loves us. And the simple truth is this. Our Savior, our God loves us deeply, so much so they gave his son. There is one God there's one savior and there's only one ransom and I'm telling you it's been paid for. If you're a Christian here today and you're struggling with that, um, you don't have to be ashamed of it, we all do. 
we all have sins that we hide behind smiles and nice clothes and polite behavior. But it eats at us. And if it's eating at you, you have a way. There is a path to hand it over to God. Just open your hands. Doesn't matter how many times, doesn't matter how dark it is, doesn't matter what I think about it, doesn't matter what the jury thinks or the judge, because there's only one Savior, and that's Christ. And if you are new here, if you're sitting here and you're wondering, why this Christ? Why do I follow? Why should I follow him? Well, that's the key. You should follow him, not me, not Gary, not Terry, not Phil, but him. Because we're not the great mediator. He is. And if you're tired of carrying around that baggage and that luggage and that shame and that hurt, there is a way out. I'd be glad to talk to you about it. Talk to me. If you're struggling with, as a Christian, talk to me. I'll help you. All I'm going to do is lead you to him. Because he is a great mediator. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your love. We thank you the fact that, that you gave us grace. And we openly admit the best of us in this room or on this earth don't deserve it. Not even close. But you gave it to us nonetheless. We thank you. We humbly thank you. We love you, Lord. We wish to honor you in our actions and our words. And please, please, God, open the door for us to share this truth with anybody that would listen. Because of what it's done for us, oh, God, we want to share it with everybody else, too. We thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, amen.